coming up on Conversations and Bionics on Pain. First of all, I just want to be clear and that no one misinterprets my position that, of course, I believe in plasticity and I would never, ever claim that it does not exist, right? I think the only question is what can and can't it do, right? And I think there is some naive ideas that it can do anything you want. And I think your study, you know, uh, is one of several that shows that it really cannot. Okay, first of all, if the location of the sensation will have migrated, you agree that probably will be a great finding and then the paper will have ended up in nature or science or something like that, but it didn't. Uh, so, and the reason why it would have been great is because the consequences of that will be that when building neuroprosthesis, it wouldn't really matter where in the nerves you put the electrode, the brain will take care of it later on. And it's rather disappointing that that doesn't happen. It just makes our work as designers a lot harder because now we realize that we really need, you know, to find new technologies to be able to selectively target those nerves or high resolution interfaces that allow you to have projections to every part of the hand. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, a couple, I just want to say a couple of things about that. One, you know, the technologies that we're using now are pretty cool. I mean, you, you know, you you send people home for years at a time with these technologies in, in, in their in their nerves and 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 they were very stable and they were useful, right? But they're still pretty primitive technologies. Right. You know, I mean, right. it's very hard for me to believe that even in, in 10 years or 15 years, we're gonna still rely on just a handful of channels, right? Right. And a lot of smart people are working on making those technologies better. So I think right now we're still at a stage where we're trying to get, you know, kind of get a lay of the land, try to understand what are the things that we want this technology to do. And then, you know, have people who work on this kind of thing do that, right? I mean, we put a, a man on the moon. I think we can come up with a decent freaking, you know, peripheral nerve array. But the other thing I want to say, you know, to go back to the more basic science, in retrospect, it's obvious. You know, it's obvious that plasticity, it shouldn't do that. Because first of all, you know, if you think about, you know, sensory systems have evolved, right? And they've evolved to kind of let you adapt to your environment. But if you think about it, an amputated animal is dead. There's no point in trying to right. come up with this really sophisticated way to reorganize a sensory system in order to, uh, you know, uh, accommodate its, its recent injury because it's not going to survive that injury. Right. That's just not something yeah. that evolution would actually work toward. Correct. Right. More generally, how do you construct a sensory system? Well, there's this all this genetic kind of plan that is put into place, you know, during development that makes sure that, you know, thalamic axons go to the right parts of the, the, the brain and, and just sets a scaffolding for, you know, early kind of critical period learning. But once your body is fully grown, you know, there's no reason for that. You know, the, the sensory system, there's no reason for the sensory system to be plastic anymore. It's going to just tell you what's going on with your body, give you ground truth about the state of your body and its interactions with objects. So there's no reason for it to be plastic, right? And I think there's probably parts of the brain, like the motor system, there is a reason for the motor system to be plastic because we constantly have to learn new skills and adapt to a slightly, you know, start to perturbations. But I just don't think that that's the case on the sensory side. And that's why I've been very skeptical of this from day one.
Welcome to Conversations on Bionics and Pain. I'm Dr. Max Ortiz Catalan. I'm the director of the Center for Bionics and Pain Research, which is a multidisciplinary engineering medical collaboration between Chalmers University of Technology, Salgonenska University Hospital, and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. In this episode dedicated to a research article, I talked with Professor Sliman Besmaya at the University of Chicago, with whom I collaborated on an article published in Cell Reports with the title of Chronic use of a sensitized bionic hand does not remap the sense of touch. In this study, we provide evidence for the limits of brain plasticity with regards to somatosensation. In other words, our findings indicate some sort of neural hardwiring on the way we experience sensations such as touch. Whereas the motor system seems to be rather plastic or adaptable, trainable if you wish, the somatosensory system seems rather stubborn, unwilling to adapt to our engineering needs. We have known for decades that if we place an electrode in a nerve and send an electric pulse, the person will experience a sensation in the location where that nerve connects to its biological sensing organ. If the axon that is stimulated connects to a sensor in the index finger, you will feel a sensation in the index finger. Now, even if the index finger has been amputated, you will still experience a sensation in the index finger when stimulating that axon. And that is because your brain sees information arriving in that particular channel and infers that it must come from whatever it was originally connected to. So this is well known. Now, it is currently impossible to precisely place electrodes in nerve fibers that connect or used to connect to biological sensors of your choice. We know roughly where the sensations will be felt based on anatomical arrangements that tend to be similar between humans, but not precisely. If we place an electrode in the medial nerve in an above elbow amputation, we know that sensations will be felt on the palmar side of the thumb, index, and middle finger, but not exactly in which one. And this is a problem because what you would like to do is to place electrodes in the parts of the nerves that precisely match the location that will be equivalent to where you have placed sensors in the prosthetic hand. So when you see the hand making contact with an object, that part making the contact is the same part that you feel the tactile sensations arising from. However, since this cannot be fixed at implantation, a naive hope that I had, and many others in the field, was that the brain will adapt and fix the mismatch after repeated exposure. Say, after thousands of times of seeing the contact in one of the fingers but feeling in another, the brain could rewire to match the visual feedback and the tactile experience. Unfortunately, we found out that this is not the case and this is the topic of this episode. When writing the paper, we realized that there was really no scientific evidence to suggest that this will happen, and it was more wishful thinking or naive intuitions that led many people to believe that this will be the case. This is another example of why listening to one intuitions is not a reliable way of arriving to the truth. Science does a much better work, and here I'm going to diverge a little bit on a public announcement. Do not follow your heart. I cringe every time I hear someone in pop culture saying, just follow your heart, because what they're basically saying is follow your intuitions. And how is it that intuitions arise? They arise by a mechanism that evolved millions of years ago for the survival of our species in a completely different environment than the one we live today. And therefore, this is no longer a reliable mechanism for decision-making or forming beliefs. There is a large body of literature arguing about this, and I'll be happy to touch on this in some other episode. 
but the point here is that the scientific method supported by reason and logic is a way much reliable way to arrive to the truth of a matter or decision-making for that end. And just to be clear, one can listen to one's intuitions if one is going to try to disprove them using evidence. And the best way to collect evidence is by using the scientific method. Now, you could expect that what's published in a scientific journal is closer to the truth, but this is not necessarily the case because the problems with science is that it's conducted by humans, and in humans we have a bunch of biases. And even if we do our best to compensate for those biases, there is always a lot of methodological problems when we are conducting experiments. Case in point, when I was running this experiment, we fitted a prosthetic system that allowed patients to perceive sensations coming from the prosthetic hand. The location where the patient perceived the sensation wasn't exactly the location where the sensor was placed. And again, the idea was that hopefully it will change over time. So we were asking the subject, uh, where do you feel the location? Every other day, we're calling over the phone. And, you know, subjects or participants in your experiments, they're very good at realizing what you want to hear. So there was, um, after a couple of weeks, the subject starts saying like, oh, well, actually, you know, I think now I feel the sensation in the thumb. Where is the sensor located? And I got very excited. And I suppose that he perceived that I got very excited. Um, and then he keep reporting that for a couple of times, but then it will be back on the hand. And then at some point, I felt like I needed to run some sort of control question. So I asked, uh, so where do you feel the sensation? And he said, like, well, it's, it's in the thumb. And then I said, oh, that's uh, very strange because it shouldn't be moving um, to the thumb. And then he said, well, actually, no, it's, it's on the palm and, and it's pretty much always in the palm. And you can't blame the guy because of this, because at the end, you know, you spend a lot of times with these subjects, you helping them to restore some function, you provide them in a prosthetic system, and they try to do the best to help you on your experiments as well. But this has consequences for people doing research in the field, because as of today, many of the experiments done with implanted electrodes is with, you know, few subjects. A couple, uh, most of the papers are published with one or two or three subjects uh, at most. So we have to make our best to try to uh, account for biases and account for the subjects that participate in our experiments to try to place us and that kind of deviate us from the, the truth that we're trying to find. In this case, we reported the findings of three subjects, but we have verified this with up to six subjects. And we can consistently see that the locations of the percepts are not changing. Um, so now we're rather confident that this is the reality. But now we can jump into the discussion with Professor Bismaya, and if you have any questions out of the topics that are addressed in this podcast or any other episode, you're welcome to reach out, and I might do an episode just for answering uh, questions. Would you mind introducing yourself and speaking a little bit about how you end up being a professor? Whoa. That is not quite the question you told me you were going to ask me. Um, so my name is Slima Betsmeya. I'm a professor in the Department of Organismal Biology and Anatomy at the University of Chicago. And I took a very circuitous route to becoming a professor just 
to make a long story short, I wanted to become a rocker. Things didn't really work out. And I just stumbled into a lab that's, that studied the sense of touch as a graduate student and um, became passionate about it and, and followed through with it, became, you know, learned to do neurophysiology. And then after that, learned that maybe this sort of basic scientific knowledge could be applied to, you know, something useful like um, neuroprosthetics. And here I am. Right. I mean, you've been doing a very um, fruitful uh, work in these years. So I think it was good that you ended up in the field. So a few well, years you. ago, was it was it about six years ago you were visiting Professor John Westberg in Gothenburg? Something like that. It was a while ago, a, a, a while ago. Yeah. So that's that's when I got to meet you. Yep. And um, mm -hmm. John introduced us and we were in this um, conference room and I was presenting the stuff that we were doing. And I said, well, you know, we implanted this system and the patient is having sensory feedback. It's not exactly in the location where it should be, but uh, we're hopeful that it's going to switch. And then you were like, no, that's not going to switch. And then we set up a bet about uh, a beer back then uh, where you said like it will not switch. And I was very optimistic that I will and then he didn't. <laughs> so, so and that's the paper we published recently. But, but I really, I mean, my favorite part of that story is that I see you like many years later, like five or six years, however long. And you're like, Sleeman, you won that bet. And I was like, what bet are you talking about? It's like, and then you, and then you told me the story and I'd completely forgotten about it. And you still... I don't think you never you ever gave me those beers, by the way. No, no. I was, so I remember it because you know I wouldn't pass them free beer, but I also want to pay it. But you know we haven't met since then, actually. Right. Fair enough. But uh, after the corona, then we'll, <laughs> right. we'll settle that. Would you mind describing how is it that we experience sensations of touch? Right. Well, that's a big. You know, that's what I spend most of my time trying to figure out, and I, you know, it would take a very long time to explain all of that, but. You know, the, the, in, in the very short of it is that you have uh, receptors, mechanoreceptors embedded in your skin. And so what, what a mechanoreceptor is, is a little biological device that when, when mechanically stimulated, so when the skin deforms, it produces a neural signal that it sends then to the, the central nervous system. And we have, we have basically four main touch receptors in the skin. And they differ in the way they respond to, to skin deformations. So some of them really like slow moving things when the, move, the skin deformation is slow, others like fast skin deformations, et cetera. But anyways, anytime you're in interacting with an object, you have this pattern of skin deformations that then you know, activates you know, large numbers of these receptors. And, and the signals from these receptors are carried uh, to the brain via these nerves, mainly the median and ulnar nerves for the palmar surface of the, of the hand. And all, you know, when you grasp an object, you have all this information about the object, its texture, its, 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 if it's moving across the skin, you have information about that, its shape, its local geometric features. And all this information is carried in these signals uh, um, uh, from, these, from these mechanoreceptors in the skin. And then downstream from there, you have very sophisticated neural circuitry that tries to extract information from the, these patterns of neural activation. And that, that's what we spend most of our time doing in my lab is trying to understand, well, what is the pattern of neural activation in the nerve and at every subsequent stage of processing that conveys information about texture or that conveys information about motion or that conveys information about shape? Right. And, 
And I think an important thing that I would just want to mention, because maybe it's not obvious to people who haven't thought much about touch, and that is that you know, touch is a critical sensory modality for, for our ability to move our bodies, and especially the ability to do things with our hands. And anytime we're interacting with our hands, we rely very heavily on these signals from, from, the, from the skin. And without these signals, we struggle to do anything. And we continue to struggle to do anything, even with, with practice, because the, you know, the visual feedback that you get when you're interacting with objects does not give you the information that you need to interact with them. That's not enough, right. So very uh, roughly, you'll say we have these biological sensors throughout the body in the skin. When they interact with the environment, they send signals up to the brain via the nerves. And then there is very sophisticated processing circuitry in the brain that makes experience of touch. And Right. right. So what we're trying to do in neuroprosthetics is restore sensations by interfacing with the nerves and then trying to simulate the activation of those biological sensors. So what we did in this experiment is that we have this technology that we call neuromusculoskeletal prosthesis, where we can connect to the nerves, muscles, and skeletal of the patient to provide mechanical connection, but also electrical connections to the human nervous systems, the control system um, in the body with the control system of the prosthesis. So we place an electrode in the, say in the first patient that we implanted, it's gonna be about eight years now, um, an electrode in the ulnar nerve that when we send electrical pulses, he reports experience of tactile sensations in the palm, in the area related to the ulnar innervation that will be close to the little and ringer finger. And because we have that electrode there, we can then have a sensor in the hand. And every time the hand touches an object, we detect that. And then we send pulses to this nerve and then the patient experience sensations but the sensor in the hand is in the thumb and he experiences sensations in the palm. And that is because it's very hard during the surgical procedure to be able to tell exactly which nerve you are connecting to. So, so you can connect to the ulnar nerve, but the ulnar nerve has a lot of axons and those axons will innervate different areas in the hand. And it's very hard to tell exactly which area in the hand your electrode gets closer to. And I mean, it's impossible, right? Basically, you have these fascicles in the nerve and you're just sticking your, you know, electrode on those fascicles and you get what you get. There's really no a priori way to know. I mean, with existing technologies that I know of, at least, right. to know a priori where the sensation is going to be experienced when you, you stimulate from a given fascicle, right? Right. So, so we have a, a rough idea of an area, but it's very hard to precisely say, okay, I want to be there. And then the hope I had, and I guess we had in my group in the beginning was that because the patient will be using it in daily life, over time, the brain will compensate for the mismatch and then create the experience of having that sensation in the same location as the patient was observing touch to happen. Um, but then these patients have used the system in daily life for, for a couple of years now, and that sensation has not moved at all. So in, in our paper, we show the report location, and you see a little bit of movement, but it's rather just random uh, movement. And I will say that it's basically coming down to the error of the measurement, because it's quite hard for someone to say in their phantom hand, this is exactly what I feel the sensation. So, 
So that's a couple of millimeters here and there in all directions. And, and I would say that's probably what we are seeing. And so the thing is that despite that the patients, and we wrote a paper about this, they see this arm as part of themselves. You can say it's embodied. They, they use it in functionally relevant activities. There was no change. And I guess a lot, so, so throughout these years, a lot of people thought that change will happen. Why do you think a lot of people naively, you know, believe that? Right. You know, first of all, I just want to say that the experiment that you did was really the, I think, the best test of this idea, right? That, that, uh, that eventually you see this mismatch. So these subjects go home, use this prosthesis in everyday life. Every time they see their prosthetic thumb touching something, they feel something somewhere else on their hand. And you would think, right, eventually the nervous system would sort of kind of resolve that chronic conflict between what you see and what you feel. And eventually the, the, the felt experience would coincide with the visual experience. And what you showed is that it didn't, even after, like you said, just, you know, this is functional use of this arm. So you're, 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 performing activities of daily living every day at home, you see this mismatch or you, there's this mismatch between what you see and what you feel. And yet that the, the sensation never migrates to where it's seen, right? So I thought that was really a, an excellent test because most people, well, people who, had, who were trying to do this kind of thing were doing it in the lab and so just for an hour at a time. And therefore, you know, even if there were some plasticity there during, you know, the, some movement during in the lab, it would you would expect it to go back. You know, it might just be pulled back in everyday life. Right. And so it was the right kind of experiment. And I was, you know, I was pretty confident it wasn't going to work. But if any experiment would have, I thought that one would. Right. Just just for the <laughs> record, you know. So, and as you and I were write, writing this paper, we started thinking why would you even think that it would move, right? right? Honestly, there's just, there's not a single thing in the literature that would, that would lead you to believe that these percepts would move. And I think it's more like sort of, it's a combination of magical thinking where, uh, you know, and I'm not accusing you of magical thinking. There's another thing. Which here, it, but... I would say it's wishful <laughs> thinking, yeah. Okay, wishful thinking, all right, fine. Which is, you know, the idea, there's this, I think, naive idea that the nervous system is really plastic and can learn anything. And I think this is, a, you know, this paper is one of several papers, I think, that, that show that that's just simply not the case. But, you know, there's also data that if you don't think about it carefully, seem to suggest that this kind of plasticity exists. And I think the most compelling of those papers, or those studies rather, are studies uh, of sort of what's been mislabeled reorganization after amputation, right? Where what happens is, and this has been documented now in both humans and monkeys, when you amputate, uh, you have, you know, an arm. So, you know, there's a huge chunk of the brain that is devoted to representing the arm, right? And so anytime you're, you're interacting with anything with, with a specific, with your hand, there's a specific part of your brain that is activated by that, right? And so, and what happens is when you now take away the input by, you know, 
losing that, that, that limb, that part of the brain in somatosensory cortex that is, you know, that receives this touch input from the, the, the arm and hand starts becoming activated via other, by touching other parts of the body, right. oftentimes the face, right? right? And so, and so that's been interpreted as, wow, the brain, this is like, look at this amazing reorganization. You know, bef- this part that used to be an arm part of the brain is now a face part of the brain, right? And it's a really cool phenomenon. And the phenomenon itself, which is, and the phenomenon, to be clear, is if you look at in monkeys, right? If you, if you deafferent, uh, you know, let's say you, you do something that, that, that is, as far as the central nervous system, the equivalent of amputating a monkey. And then you look at um, the, the arm representation of somatosensory cortex, you find that, of course, it no longer responds to that part, that, that, that the arm, but it starts to respond to the face. Right. And, in, and the same thing is, sh- is shown in, in human amputees. And furthermore, when you touch the face, you kind of, you know, create a sensation that's projected to the arm, right? right. Which is actually, that latter bit, I think, is a clue that maybe it's not reorganization. But then there's this beautiful series of studies um, that started with John Koss and that was followed up by Niraj Jain that really gets to the core of this and, and, and really sort of explains what's really going on. It's not this, this magical reorganization where some, suddenly arm cortex becomes hand cortex or face cortex. Rather what happens is that you're taking away the main input to these neural structures. So for instance, you're deafferenting a large chunk of the cuneate nucleus, which is in the brain, a structure in the brainstem that receives input from the peripheral, from, from the nerve, right? It's in fact, the first structure that receives the input from the nerve. Now, if you take away that, that input from the, the, the cuneate nucleus, the cuneate nucleus is connected with a, a nearby nucleus called the trigeminal nucleus, which is like the cuneate nucleus, except that it, it, it receives input from the skin of the face, right? So in you and me, there is some connections there. But now if you take the main connectivity away from the cuneate that came from the hand, what happens is that you start to strengthen the, the connections between the cuneate and the trigeminal nucleus. So these, these, sort of, these sort of connections that used to be sort of like modulatory connections, who knows what they were really for before, right? right? Suddenly become the primary drivers of cuneate activity because the, through this, you know, a process of homeostatic plasticity, if you take, right. if you take a chunk of neurons and you take away their primary input, what through this this homeostasis is going to strengthen all the other inputs, right? That's just a thing that happens. So what happens here, this is what this was shown by Niraj Jain, is that now you have this pathway that goes from the face to the trigeminal nucleus and then to the cuneate nucleus to the somatosensory cortex. And so in these amputated monkeys, well, the, you know, these sort of right. virtually amputated monkeys, right, right. If you now silence the cuneate nucleus, all that activity in the arm representation that is driven by face stimulation goes away. And and he did a a follow-up study showing that, you know, between the hand representation and the face representation, there's a septum. There is like a cell, there's very few axons that cross from the face representation in, 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 in somatosensory cortex to the hand representation. This is just in, in, you know, intact uh, organisms. 
So if you were thinking all this is in the brain, this reorganization is happening in the brain, then what you would think is axons would start growing across the septum from the face to the arm representation, thereby sort of promoting this quote-unquote reorganization. And guess what? That doesn't happen. (laughs) There is, you know, if you look at the deafferented side and the afferented side for the cortex, it's identical. There is still no, no axons that cross. Okay. So there's really, it seems like that there is no evidence for remapping. It's just simple homeostatic plasticity. So there is clearly something uh, called plasticity in the brain, right? So I found interesting when, when the paper came out and you tweet about it, there was a lot of bashing against plasticity. Because I, I, I think I read even a comment saying like, oh, well, plasticity is not really a thing or something like that. And I felt like it's maybe a a problem like many in philosophy when it comes down to semantics, right? So if you take the classic example where you say, if a tree fall in the forest and there is no person around, does it make a sound? And it really depends what you mean by sound. If you mean by sound, pressure waves certainly it does. It doesn't require a person to be there to create that. But if you mean sound as the conscious experience of sound, then there needs to be a person there to have that experience. So it really depends on how you define things. And I feel like there is clearly something called plasticity in the brain. I mean, you know, Ramonica Hall in the beginning said like, well, you know, there might be not such a such a thing, but then you have the, the discovery of long-term potentiation, the uh, neurogenesis and so on. So there are, there are certainly changes in the brain that you can define as plastic, but the, the extent at which those can take place, particularly on the sensory system, um, seem to me a little bit more limited than in the motor system, where I where I've read some papers that you can take a single motor neuron and repurpose it for something else. It seems very difficult to do that on the on the sensory system. Yeah, I mean, I just you know, first of all, I just want to be clear and that no one misinterprets my position. That of course I believe in plasticity, and I would never ever claim that it does not exist. Right? I think the only question is. What can and can't it do, right? And I think there is some naive ideas that it can do anything you want. And I think your study, you know, uh, is one of several that shows that it really cannot. Okay, first of all, if the location of the sensation will have migrated, you agree that probably will be a great finding and then the paper will have ended up in nature or science or something like that, but it didn't. Uh, So, and the reason why it will have been great is because the consequences of that will be that when building neuroprosthesis, it wouldn't really matter where in the nerves you put the electrode, the brain will take care of it later on. And it's rather disappointing that that doesn't happen. It just makes our work as designers a lot harder because now we realize that we really need, you know, to find new technologies to be able to selectively target those nerves or high resolution interfaces that allow you to have projections to every part of the hand. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, a couple, I, I just want to say a couple of things about that. One, you know, the technologies that we're using now are pretty cool. I mean, you, you know, you, you send people home for years at a time with these technologies in, 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 their, in their nerves and, and, and they were very stable and they were useful, right? But they're still pretty primitive technologies. Right. You know, I mean, right. it's very hard for me to believe that even in, in 10 years or 15 years, we're going to still rely on just a handful of channels, right? Right. 
and, and, and a lot of smart people are working on making those technologies better. So I think right now we're still at a stage where we're trying to get, you know, kind of get a lay of the land, try to understand what are the things that we want this technology to do. And then, you know, have people who work on this kind of thing do that, right? I mean, we put a, a man on the moon. I think we can come up with a decent freaking, you know, peripheral nerve array. The, um, but the other thing I want to say, you know, to go back to the more basic science thing is in retrospect, you know, before we move into completely in the engineering side of things, in retrospect, it's obvious, you know, it's obvious that plasticity shouldn't do what that it shouldn't do that because first of all you know if you think about you know sensory systems have evolved right and they've evolved to kind of let you adapt to your environment but if you think about it an amputated animal is dead there's no point in trying to right. come up with this really sophisticated way to reorganize a sensory system in order to 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 uh you know, uh, accommodate its its recent injury because it's not going to survive that injury, right? right. That's just not something yeah. that evolution would actually work toward, Correct. right? And I agree that with your and but right, but more more generally, how do you construct a sensory system? Well, there's this all this genetic kind of plan that is put into place, you know, during development that makes sure that, you know, thalamic axons go to the right parts of the, the, the brain and, and just sets a scaffolding for, you know, early kind of critical period learning. But once your body is fully grown, you know, there's no reason for that. You know, the, the sensory system, there's no reason for the sensory system to be plastic anymore. It's going to just tell you what's going on with your body, give you ground truth about the state of your body and its interactions with objects. So there's no reason for it to be plastic, right? And I think there's probably parts of the brain, like the motor system, there is a reason for the motor system to be plastic because we constantly have to learn new skills and adapt to a slightly, you know, to perturbations. But I just don't think that that's the case on the sensory side. And that's why I've been very skeptical of this from day one. Right. I want to touch in a couple of maybe more detailed uh, particularities of the study related to how this thing was measured. Because the way I have traditionally measured perception thresholds and the sensations is by using a single pulse. Uh, and I know all, all the other groups are using a train of pulses. And the decision of using a single pulse versus a train of pulse is completely arbitrary for both ends. Uh, I just saw a single pulse as a, something that required less arbitrary decisions on, say, frequency and duration and so on. And then if you look at the paper, what we're reporting, those points are basically the perception thresholds. Where is the patient reporting the faintest or weakest sensation? Because what we know is that when they're using it in daily uh, activities of the daily living, we stimulate and uh, the intensity of the sensation is graded based on the force applied to the sensor. And that has as a consequence that the area of the perception increases depending on the on the strength of the stimulation. So the sensation starts in one point, and those are the points that you see in the figure of the paper, but then they, they expand the stronger the stimulation is. And in one case, or two cases, in, in two of the patients at least, the extension of that area cover the location of the sensor, where, where I think you could say, okay, actually in daily life, when the patient grabs an object at the maximum force, the sensation will include the location of the tongue. Um, 
But nevertheless, even with that, if you can say maybe a little bit of help to the system to say like, oh, you know, this is kind of close. It's in the same nerve. It's relatively close. When you grab it strongly, you actually feel it there because it's the whole thumb that where you feel the sensation. Even in that case, the, the weakest percept was still in the original position, um, pointing to a, to a rather stable location of those percepts over time, which I think is an, an important point of the paper. Will you, will you agree? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, you know, it depends on what, why you're saying it's, you're, you're helping it, right. You're helping it by having it, uh, you know, overlap some, sometimes, but you can. Wishfully saying that, you know, ignorantly saying that that might, you know, give it a, a notch nudge towards. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. And I'm just not sure that there's anything that could nudge it. Right. You know, and I think, you know, it's an interesting idea. You know, one, one thing that just that's worth probably saying um, is, you know, your single pulse strategy is, 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 you know, is interesting for, I think it's a good point that, you know, when you're using, pulse trains, then it's like what frequency, what duration, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, all that goes away when you're doing a single pulse. What's interesting too, though, is that, you know, this has been shown, I think, for now decades that, you know, if you evoke a single spike in, in, in certain types of nerve fibers, like slowly adapting type one, rapidly adapting, you, you evoke a percent, right? Mm. And so probably at threshold, you know, and, and, and another thing that you mentioned, but I'll, I'll, I'll repeat is that, um, is that the when your 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 threshold you know when 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 the subjects were asked what is the you know what is the extent of the sensation at threshold it was just like very punctate right, right. it was just a little point right and so probably at threshold you're just stimulating a single nerve fiber right and as you turn up the juice you start recruiting more and more nerve fibers right. within a fascicle and that's why you sort of have this increase in the area over a, a range it doesn't right. just increase you know right. Which makes sense, forever. right? Yeah, it makes exactly. makes sense. That's exactly what you would expect. That's right. Um, so again, though, you're saying, well, you know, there's probably some some hypotheses about how plasticity would operate, according to which this overlap would help, right? But since right. I don't believe in any of them, it's hard <laughs> for me to say it would help because there's nothing that would help because, in fact, there's this pretty fixed mapping between the patterns of activity in the nerve, patterns of activity in the brain, and then the resulting sensory experience, right? right? You know, let me say one thing too that I think is relevant to this conversation, and that of course you know, is that you can take a, you, you can take somebody who's been amputated for decades, right? They haven't had a sensation in their hand emanating from their hand in 20 years. And then you 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 implant their median and and or older nerves with, with an electrode array. And then you electrically stimulate through that array. And poof, they get a sensation back that is experienced on the hand, on that hand that they know is not there. And it's a vivid tactile sensation that, that is experienced there. So that means, right, what does that imply? That this pathway that went from the hand to the brain to the sensory experience of, of the hand is still there, hasn't really changed much, at least insofar as you it still results in that sensory experience once you, you electrically right, stimulate right. the nerve. So that I think also points toward the, the, the relative stability 
of kind of sensory representations in adulthood, at least. Right, right. No, I guess I, I was just trying to be the devil's advocate because in this conversation is you and I and we're out there. Yeah, no, I know. It's like an echo chamber. We didn't invite anybody on the other side, which I have to say, actually, I don't, I, I wouldn't know who will be on the other side because um, the, the response. I can give you some suggestions later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, no, but so, so this was, so this was very interesting. And then, you know, when we were writing this paper, I came across something that uh, that I don't remember if I told you, but I find very relevant to this finding. And that is that, uh, so, so I work with surgeons um, here in Gothenburg, and there is um, a surgeon who, um, Gennaro Salvaggi, he does a lot of sex transfer surgery. So in a trans man, what you can do is that you do, um, let me get the term right, phalloplasty with nerve anastomosis, which basically mean that you take a forearm flap, you take a piece of the skin and you, you build a penis out of it. And then what happens there is that, actually, let me, let me share you my screen so you see what I'm, what I'm talking about. And I will, I'll link this paper to, um, to the podcast. So, so when you do this, this penis out of uh, your own tissue, you end up with two nerves. So you have a lateral and a medial nerve. And what you do is you connect the clitoris nerve to the lateral branch, and then the genitofemoral nerve to the medial branch. And that means that half of the penis receives sensations that are perceiving the clitoris, and the other half are sensations perceiving the thigh. And when you are using your penis, you Arguably, you touch it, the entire of it, right? So you will say, if you have penis for several years, which his patients have, you will say that those sensations, if there is such a plasticity, will come together and will just feel in the clitoris or the, you know, or, or now the penis. But that doesn't seem to happen. So, so when they need to do some revision or something, or they need to anesthetize the penis, they will inject uh, the anesthesia in both sides. And when you inject the, the lateral side, the patients will report pain in the clitoris. And when you inject it on the medial side, they will report pain in the thigh. And I think this is, you know, using biological, a biological reconstruction. You, you're connecting these nerves in your daily life, if you wish. This, this thing is connected to you. You use it every day. When, when you touch it, you touch both sides. The brain is not remap, is not making that, I don't know if you'll call it remap or just, just extreme plasticity at this point to create an experience that just derives entirely from the same point. And I, and I think this, you know, very much confirms what we've been, what we've been talking about. Very cool. That is very much in the same vein. I mean, exactly. That, that's, that's what you would expect. So they did do this tracking in this study. They did track sort of the where the sensory experience right is is projected huh. right very cool yeah so there the seems to be there is you know evidence and uh, so of course what i what i've been trying to do now is, is see if there is you know evidence that point time to the to points to the contrary because if we could find a way for that you know what i'm calling now extreme plasticity to take place it will make our job doing neuroprosthetics a lot easier so, so it will be a good thing to find out. It doesn't, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that it's possible. Um, 
yet, you know, it's good to remain open to, to the possibilities. Absolutely. I, you know, I think it's important as, you know, as a sort of a sort of a philosophical point, I think it's important to stay open to possibilities. And just because I can't think of any way or reason why, <laughs> you know, this kind of plasticity is, is, is possible. I would, I'm open to that poss possibility, but I think it's also important you know, I think our job as scientists is to take a position on things, you know, be flexible and open-minded about it, but say, this is the way I think things work. Prove me otherwise. And, and you know, and I think, the, you know, in the plasticity realm, there was, again, I think a lot of magical thinking, this idea that, wow, you know, every, anything can happen. And, and there are some very prominent members of the neuroscience community that to this day really at least right as if the nervous system can rewire in whatever way you want. If it's kind of, if you systematically kind of create an input output relationship, it can rewire in whatever way you want. And I think we need to re-examine that. And I think that this study is one of the sort of nails in that kind of magical pixie dust plasticity uh, uh, story. Right, right. No, I, coffin, I think coffin to, to finish. <laughs> the plasticity coffin. <laughs> I, I think it's important to, so I, I'm not sure if we must take position as scientists, but I think it's important to uh, voice your position just so, so for yourself and others to be conscious that there will be bias because of your position. And, and you know, at least being conscious, you can try to do something to, to contrast their effect. But um I mean, what I mean simply is to have a clearly stated hypothesis, right, right, that that makes very specific predictions. Like I had a very specific predictions about the outcome of your study, <laughs> correct. Right? And if I end up being wrong, then I, you know, have to admit that I was pay, wrong. Pay and, then I will, yeah. and I would owe you the beer that you owe me now. <laughs> correct. No, I, th <laughs> I think put the to find a point on it. <laughs> Right, no, no, that's a, that's an important thing. It's because uh, I, I think that's the main difference between science and pseudoscience that you you have ideas that should be testable and do a specific predictions, and I think as long as you stick into that, you'll you'll do well in science. And and I'm saying this just because again, the audience for this podcast is mostly you know students or, or young scientists. So right, I mean that's part of why I want to bring that up. But I just I also want to say you know there's another point to this, and that is. You know, I don't have a vested interest in this, really, particularly in, in you know, the, the role of plasticity or lack thereof. Um, but, you know, when I was doing this, you know, when I started doing neuroprosthetics work, actually, this was in the context of brain machine interfaces. Every time I give a talk, because the other thing I want to mention that's very important is that my, you know, sort of perspective on on neuroprosthetics, you know, sensory feedback in neuroprosthetics, whether it be for, for amputees or tetra individuals with tetraplegia, is that, and to me, it's a truism, but not everyone believes this, that, uh, that you want to basically speak the, the language of the nervous system to the extent that you can match with your device the signals that the nervous system naturally uses to communicate it, to touch information you're going to create sensations that are natural, that are intuitive, and that sort of support behavior better. I mean, right? right. Ideally. And ideally, obviously. And to the extent that you can do that, great. Right. Um, 
And so, so I would get my talks and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to speak the, the, the language of the nervous system. And people correctly would say, well, what about the fact that, you know, now you're, you've taken out this input and there's, a, there's the potential for plasticity. And, you know, and honestly, early on, I didn't really know the answer to that question. I was like, you know, intuitively, it <laughs> seemed like we were in the right, doing the right thing. But then it's like, well, boom. And so I teamed up with, with Tamar Macon, who basically studies amputees and, and the, the, the neural correlates of amputation. And, you know, together we, we looked at the literature and, and just looked for evidence for this kind of, you know, plasticity in the sensory system in a variety of different contexts. Mm-hmm. Hand, uh, re, uh, what do you call it, when you sew a hand back on? Uh, replantation. Reimplantation, right? Right. Uh, you know the, the the context of amputation, the context of tetraplegia, um, anything we could we could find that might be relevant, and that you just kind of changed, removed, or modified. You know the, the the natural input, and in no case that I could see, that we could see, was there a situation where there was the kind of reorganization that we would need as neuroprosthetists. Right. you know, um, to, to kind of overcome this problem that you were talking about earlier that you don't really know where the, you know, the projected fields are going to be. And so, and so, you know, so the, the point is, so this was a long-winded way to say that this, you know, this is sort of a lens through which we can then interpret what has been misinterpreted. So for instance, this idea, why is it that when you touch the face of an amputee, you can create a sensation on the it, you know, that's experienced on the hand, right, in, in some cases. And, and from the context of that, what happens is you through this, this um, homeostatic plasticity that we were talking about earlier, you're ectopically activating parts of the nervous system that, were, that have been deafferented. And, and that is interpreted downstream as if it's coming from the original right. source of that right. affrontation, right? So it all kind of fits together in a, in a very clear picture and and that's why i I, that's why i've been kind of pretty vocal about this hypothesis and challenging others to prove me wrong (laughs) on it and i must say um i believe the evidence of these referred sensations um i don't think that has been studied thoroughly Uh, it seems to me that a lot of it is anecdotal reports you know which might which might be fine but we don't really know the extent of which this happens you know, if it's like a minority of cases of like, right. like big Absolutely. Cases and so on. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Great. So thanks a lot, uh, Professor Pesmaya, for a hey, conversation. That was fun. <laughs> and we'll uh, definitely settle that bet uh, as soon as uh, traveling is possible. Hey, you know what? I got vaccinated. So oh, maybe sooner rather for than you. later, my friend, I'm going to come to Gothenburg and claim my beer from you. <laughs> right. Let's do that. <laughs> You can subscribe to this podcast in any of your preferred platforms, that is Spotify, Audible, iTunes, or whatever it is that you use to listen to podcasts. And thanks to Dr. Enzo Mastino for the jingles.